0: Talking Bay 94, the Star Wars podcast devoted to interviews with the cast, crew, and creators of Galaxy Far, Far Away. I'm your host, Brandon Winerdy, and today I'm talking to Steve Sansweet, chairman and president of Rancho Obi-Wan and former fan relations advisor for Lucasfilm. From the Star Wars Encyclopedia to QVC to the Star Wars Insider and the Rose Parade, we dive deep into Mr. Sansweet's history with the Galaxy Far, Far Away. This is Talking Bay 94, episode 58, Steve Sansweet. Everyone, when you get interviewed, always talks about, of course, the collecting and rancho and all that. What was your first introduction to writing, and when did you know that you wanted to kind of make that a major part of your life? I
1: think I was probably seven or eight years old when I uh, hand-printed a neighborhood uh, newspaper Didn't, didn't sell many copies of it. I think I was charging uh, three cents or five cents. I'm not sure I sold any copies of it. But I think uh, there was something about being a writer and being in the newspaper business that had attracted me even before I understood what it was all about. And so uh, by the time it came to pick a major in, uh, in college, I picked journalism. And back in those days, there were lots of newspapers, unlike these days, when they're sort of dying to read, unfortunately. But I always enjoyed writing, and um, I joined the Philadelphia Inquirer, not the Enquirer, mm-hmm. and uh, was a reporter there, and then switched over to the Wall Street Journal in 1969, and that's what really uh, sent me going for 26 years, oh. I thought I was going to retire at the Journal yeah. and was a reporter. And then uh, for the last nine years, I was Bureau Chief in Los Angeles. Oh. So that was a, a great career. But then something sort of interfered <laughs> with that.
0: <laughs> well, let's talk about that something. And I guess you were first kind of introduced to it. Uh, I read the story while you were working at the the journal. What was it like first finding out about Star Wars and experiencing that, and then what really made you connect with it uh, in a way that maybe other things hadn't?
1: Well, being a journalist, I was invited to a a media screening of Star Wars at the 20th Century Fox back lot about uh, a week and a half, two weeks before it opened, Mm -hmm. so before all the hype started, (laughs) and it was like discovering it fresh. And by then, Fox had finally realized it had something on its hands, although it still wasn't too short. Uh, I can remember that the Monday after the press screening, 20th Century Fox stock rose because the buzz was out (laughs) that this was a very different kind of movie and was liable to do pretty good at the box office. And discovering the history and everything and looking back at the time, it was really Lucasfilm going out there a year before the movie opened and talking to fans. Uh, There was a guy named Charlie Lippincott, who was the director of, uh, vice president of marketing and merchandising, and he had about uh, three lines of titles on his business card. He was a a comic book uh, fan himself and decided to go out and do Four or five fan conventions the year before Star Wars came out, including San Diego Comic-Con, which was then in infancy, and Worldcon, which was in Kansas City uh, in 1976. And that's why people were surprised that there were so many lines when Star Wars opened, and it opened only on 32 screens that first day. Mm and um it was a slow rollout plan for for this movie. Things were done a lot differently back then. Mm. and uh, it just became this amazing phenomenon in the media, and that drove more attention and it got great reviews, and more and more people showed up. Star Wars started to become what it is today. Yeah.
0: And, of course, then the merchandise really started rolling out. What was, I guess, even then, since it was so early, the infamous, you know, puzzles and the early bird certificate, what was your first approach, I guess, to building a, a collection of, of Star Wars items? And what made you kind of want to just keep collecting that as the year, let's say, went on when it might have just kind of, you know, no sequel was announced, nothing was really going to happen?
1: Well, I had started collecting... Space toys. Um, I, I grew up loving and reading science fiction, and so Star Wars became part of that collecting phenomenon. I had been collecting battery-operated Japanese robots and uh, space toys and things of that nature. So there wasn't a whole lot of uh, movie merchandise out uh, back in those days. You you didn't successfully merchandise a movie um the, there had not really been a good example of a successful merchandise movie unlike tv shows which were on once a week and um you know you could count on some longevity uh for at least a season and you know there were star trek toys and things like that but they had a tough time selling the idea of star wars to the toy companies and in fact it was this moderate-sized toy company in Cincinnati, Kenner Products, um, which had a very enthusiastic team that had read the script, and unlike some of the big toy companies which had passed on it, they decided that they would uh, come along because it was a very (laughs) toyetic movie. When it became obvious that it was a huge hit, they started putting out everything they could, but that was... Game boards and, and other licensees put out T-shirts and T-shirts. Uh, those were the days where you would walk into a T-shirt shop and you would, you would pick the decal and um, they would uh, hot press it onto the shirt. So there weren't a whole a lot of licensed shirts out there. They, that was just beginning too. Um, so it was a very different time back then. Uh, sort of like uh, Baby Yoda today. No, no Baby Yoda merchandise for a while except for the bootlegs.
0: My question would be, so then you continued to collect and the saga continues. Uh, when were you first becoming more officially involved with Lucasfilm and working almost directly with that team?
1: Well, it wasn't until, I mean, in, in uh, 1987, I did a, uh, a, an op-edit uh, column for the journal on the 10th anniversary of uh, Star Wars and uh had a chance to interview George Lucas on the phone I said I'd be happy to come up there and interview him I was in LA and but uh this was my chance to meet Mr Lucas and uh and get a glimpse of Skywalker Ranch this uh mysterious place yeah. that was almost a legend it was a legend actually the head of communications said well you know we'll do it we'll do it by phone so that was a nice introduction Um, In the early 90s, I had heard that uh, Lucasfilm was considering doing a Star Wars, licensed Star Wars price guide. Mm -hmm. And they were just restarting the whole publication division. And um, I uh, just cold called the lady who was head of publications and said, if anybody does that Star Wars price guide, it should be me. And the response was, and you are who... (laughs) So uh, we talked a while, and it turns out she had a different idea for a price guide, and it was a price guide with anecdotes. And right. I said, well, that doesn't quite work. I said, you could do a book with anecdotes. And that became the basis of my first Star Wars book, which was Star Wars from concept to screen to collectible, right. which traced the movie from an idea in George Lucas's mind to... Uh, how they actually made it to ILM and in production and then to the merchandise. And uh, this was a time when things were very slow for Star Wars. I mean, it, the last movie had come out in 1983, of course, and this was 1990, 91. And I remember interviewing the president of licensing for Lucasfilm, Howard Rothman, yeah. and, and said, you know... I've been a collector of this stuff, and I've got to say, things are a little meager out there. There's not very much, if if anything, to uh, buy. And he said, Steve, when, when the public is ready for Star Wars, Star Wars will be there for them. Yeah. And I always remember that. And uh, true to his word, uh, that indeed happened. In the meantime, my first book came out in 1992, and lots of people tell me today... Um, that that was the book that really turned them on to Star Wars collecting. Um, They were of the right age. They had grown up. They were kids when Star Wars came out. They were now in the workforce and had some disposable income. And and the book showed them how much stuff there really was out there, how much stuff was made and the pre-production items and worldwide and food items and you know so it it really did so people either thank me or blame me for that <laughs> right. book a little bit of both a right. little bit of both
0: i love reading that one and i love reading the old price guides i also hate reading them because of the the actual prices in there and you're like oh my god, oh my you're god. Like, oh, no. yeah right.
1: if only if only we knew right so uh the next book was uh was with tumbush organization tomart and we did two versions of a price guide. This was around the middle of the 1990s, and um, my first book appeared on a QVC Shopping Mm -hmm. Network uh, uh, Star Wars collectibles show. And uh, I was invited on as a guest when the Tomart book came out, and Tom Tom Tombush Jr. and I signed... Two thousand copies of those, I went on the show, and um, it, it was it, it worked so well that both Lucasfilm and the people who were putting on the show asked if I would come back. and it became a uh, it became a bit of a regular uh, uh, outing for me. Uh, four or five times a year, I would go back to Philadelphia. Um, this was in a suburb of Philadelphia called Westchester where QVC was headquartered and uh be sort of the co host on the Star Wars collectible shows. And um even though I was not working for Lucasfilm, they would give me clips and yeah. uh information and so I'd sort of have some Star Wars news or something right. special with me. So it was just it was beyond just the selling Same. It was uh also information and some fun and uh I had a blast doing yeah. that. So I I totally did about uh between the, the mid nineties and nineteen ninety nine about fifty hours worth wow. of uh uh QVC Star Wars Collectibles programming. And then I, I got a call in um nineteen ninety five from Lucasfilm saying that they were looking for someone, and could I possibly suggest someone um, that would go out in 1996 and do a bunch of fan conventions, maybe eight to ten fan conventions, and uh, have uh, have some trailers and things like that, and discuss the Star Wars Special Editions, which were coming out early in 1997. And so they were, once again, very much aware of fans and and the need to contact fans i mean lucasfilm really sort of pioneered fan relations for the movie business there had certainly been other things back in the 30s when uh radio was the big thing and you would have the uh green lantern fan club and you would send away for your Dakota rings and things of that nature um but not really for a movie and of course because lucasfilm besides indiana jones and some other movies lucasfilm was mainly star wars um they could really concentrate on that Uh, lucasfilm from the very beginning always answered fan letters and they they do to this day um they're very responsive and keep their uh keep their eye on the fan community and you know try to clear up misapprehensions and uh and try to put out the straight story when they can.
0: One of the stories I've always heard at that initial outset of kind of the new special edition push, because I went to A&M for undergrad and for master's, and I always heard that that was one of the first places, and I think you were the one that screened very, very first footage of special edition, or even just teasing that it was happening, and that kind of spawned .net and all of from that one visit almost.
1: That, that that's, that's true. That was... Uh, that was the first, yeah. and uh, it it just sort of uh, grew from there. And instead of eight to ten that year, I ended up doing uh, about forty fan conventions all over the world. And at the same time, I was, uh, you know, I had this wonderful job at the Wall Street Journal. I was bureau chief in Los Angeles, but it had, I was bureau chief for nine years, and and they needed to make room for. Some new blood, and they offered me some very good opportunities at the journal. i just didn't i just didn't uh none of them appealed to me um to become a super reporter or to become an editor in new york um but you know lucasfilm uh, their semi offer was you know a one year only job guaranteed one year only. at a a little more than a third the salary I was making at the Wall Street Journal. But I also had another project that I was doing, and that was the first Star Wars encyclopedia. And I was having trouble with my full-time job at the Journal, finding time a an almost oppressive thing to work on because there was so much to read and to to turn into uh, items for the encyclopedia that, um, that I thought I'll never get this finished. I'll certainly never get it finished by the deadline. Uh, despite the fact that it was one year only and uh, not a huge salary, uh, naturally I took the job. I mean, I followed my bliss as Joseph Campbell would say. Uh,
0: well, let's talk about the Star Wars encyclopedia because you worked on the original as well as the updated with, with Pablo Hidalgo. At the same time, I had original encyclopedia and i had the guide to the star wars galaxy bill slavisek and bill slavisek was great because it was portable right right i could i could put that in my backpack relatively easily uh the encyclopedia was not and i have it right in front of me and it is still beautiful right full color just an incredible deep dive and in your introduction for that book it really lays out things that we're still talking about now about here's you know why things are um dated the way they are here's what canon is in the eyes of lucasfilm right the movies are a priority and then everything else is secondary right. and then if you read through it right these incredible illustrations and and really bringing to life this universe that really we'd only seen in comics and in and in the books um was a really in- impressive feat what was it like putting that together and and how much input did you have from you know the uh bantam teams and the comic book teams and, and making sure that it was kind of a holistic look at, at everything that was happening
1: it was hell (laughs) when I started out the head of publishing said oh Steve don't worry you know most of the stuff is uh, has already been been processed and you really just need to put it together we'll be able to provide a lot of the stuff well that turned out not to be true I mean she wasn't lying to me but she was under a misimpression too so what it took was rereading all of the books and manuscripts for books that were about to come out in the next year, all of the comics up till that date. And so I was a pretty well-read guy on Star Wars. <laughs> right. And Bill Slavacek's Guide to the Star Wars Universe was a very important starting point mm-hmm. for the book. But we expanded it well beyond that because so much more had happened, right. and we were able to go into much more depth. And then you get the problems like, what do you do with Anakin Skywalker? There were a number of entries that we weren't sure of that we sent directly to George to look at. And he would he would make some changes. Like there had been a story that uh, Obi-Wan was Owen's brother-in-law or brother, or there was some relationship there, and George crossed that out. That was in one of the novelizations. He changed... Force ghost to force spirit oh, every time it was in there. Um, so you know, there were just you know a couple of things that we sent them, but it made a it made a big difference knowing that uh, that the, the the guy who was telling the story um, was making sure that uh, what we put out there was accurate. And of course, it had a lot of the expanded universe stuff in there too.
0: Wow! If you look at your bibliography of all the books that you. Of written there's a there's a very distinct it's either nonfiction reference kind of guide the chronicles and the encyclopedias and then this other side where it really does focus on not only just a price guide and a collectibles but the history and, and the two of the ones that i love and I, I just page through them more often than not are the the scrapbook and the vault and those are the scrapbook especially is one of the first ones i remember in any kind of book that had the little extras right the right. paper goods the pop-outs and what was that like putting that book together
1: that was a lot of fun because I was able to go through my collection and and uh, working with the designers of the book, uh, pick a bunch of um, three dimensional objects that we could reproduce. Of course, it, that that became also the basis of the Star Wars Vault. Except we really did it even in 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 bigger terms um, years later.
0: Plus the DVD, the CD, that was. That was the big kicker at the end, right?
1: Yeah, I had to call Carrie Fisher and get her permission to put her <laughs> singing voice on this.
0: Right. That's still the ba- That's still like the ultimate because I remember that book was announced like that's so great, and I think you even might have said it like on this is the song from the holiday special. And I remember everyone just freaking out. We're like, okay, like here we go, like this is right. this is happening, <laughs> incredible, incredible.
1: Actually, adding the holiday special to an official book was right. uh, of. like. Like pulling teeth, but right. uh, we got it approved. So that that was great fun. I've I really enjoyed doing the the Star Wars books. It really immersed me in the whole in the whole movie and expanded universe and um, in the collectibles and in the information area. Mm-hmm. The uh, second encyclopedia was because it, it's 1.2 million words, <laughs> and uh, Pablo Hidalgo was really Uh, I couldn't have done it without him. He was the co-author, but there were uh, five other people who contributed letters. And I basically wrote through the entire book to give it one voice. Um, But that was, uh, yeah, that was quite a book.
0: One of the things that always stands out to me, you were such a, and you are such a forward facing part of the Star Wars community. And one of those things that really brought that to life, um, especially growing as a Star Wars fan, was your column in The Insider. And I still, I have all my insiders in front of me, and I still remember pretty much every column was you saying, if it's a misprint or a wrong figure, it's not worth anything. Please check eBay for for prices and things that you want. What was it like, kind of hearing from fans now and kind of immersing yourself um, even more into that fan culture and that fan community?
1: Well, it was it was great. It was I would get hand printed letters from seven and eight year olds saying, "I just bought a blank blank figure for four dollars and ninety five cents. How much is it worth?" <laughs> <laughs> And I would run I would run letters like that every so many months just to let people know it's you know it's worth what you paid for it or what you can get somebody else to pay you for it exactly and um, and then people would ask obscure questions um, about foreign collectibles and uh, about prototypes and yeah. and things like that but uh, mostly they were. Fairly straightforward questions. Sometimes they would lead me into a full column of information about things. I I remember writing a column about the unproduced Star Wars line that uh, Kenner tried to come up with after the end of Return of the Jedi. Some of the strange things that they had suggested as follow-ups that would use some of the toys and molds that they had already produced. Uh, and some some new pieces, um, so it was fun finding out about that stuff. And then there was just this cadre of uh, collectors that started from there and just went crazy. I think they uh, they had directories of uh, old directories of Kenner employees and probably made phone calls or knocked on doors in Cincinnati and drove people crazy, but uh, that's where a lot of that early stuff uh, came from. And um, and seeing the, the prices back then and the prices huh. today are right. pretty crazy. Seeing some of the auction prices for rocket-firing FETs and things of that nature is just uh, mind-blowing.
0: I think there's one letter in there that always has stuck out to me, and I think it was about foreign plain barf bags i want to say for one of the prequel movies and i'm like all right one of these days i will find that online. i I love it so much moving to your expanded role in the fan community again kind of i grew up during this whole time where star wars was coming back right it was a lot of the prequels a lot of the special editions and one of the things that always stood out to me and then when i was doing some research for this interview it, it really showed that you were very heavily involved in it was the george lucas featuring rose parade um that i still remember being such an incredible celebration of of the star wars fan community and kind of this this overjoyous um celebration of it
1: and that was really directly george's idea george george as a kid george and his family used to frequently come down on new year's day to uh, pasadena california and uh and watched the Rose Parade in person. And so this was something that was very important in his life. And he was the one who suggested to my boss, who was the head of uh, marketing, that he wanted to do the Rose Parade to to mark 30th anniversary of Star Wars. He said he wanted hundreds of stormtroopers marching down Colorado Boulevard. And I I told my boss, well, okay, that's that's a challenge, but there's a lot of... uh, A lot of 501st members in Southern California, and then we can go out and see what we need in Northern California and then spread out. And he said, no, no. George wants them from every state and all over the world. And so that became my challenge over the next uh, six to eight months was being able to go out there and pick people and make sure that we got a representation from all over the world and people who could actually with some training actually march and um and we weren't announcing the rose parade yet it was a little too early so i had to use some ledger domain and uh some fast talk and say uh, we need some videos of uh people marching and i can't tell you what it's for except that uh it's really important and got in all of these uh tapes and cds dvds meant days going through them and trying to figure out who was who and who could march and right. it was <laughs> <laughs> it was really pretty funny when you look at it in the in retrospect right. um but we managed to get a uh a a great a great crew of men and women and brought in the Rebel Legion for face characters and good guys. And then a bunch of us, uh, Lucasfilm employees, were in Imperial officer costumes marching on the side just to make sure everything would go okay. And uh, that if people had to cut out, if they couldn't make the full march, that they knew how to do it and we could handle any emergencies. So it was quite a day, and George wanted a high-stepping marching band, so we got that from uh, Louisiana. The uh, Rose Parade people wanted floats, and at first George wasn't so crazy about the idea, and then he really got into it. And um, he also suggested that we have X-Wings and TIE Fighters come down the street. <laughs> and they said, no, that's that's a little too close to real-world uh Armaments, and so uh, we ended up having an Endor float and a Naboo float. So mm-hmm. the original trilogy and the prequels, and it, it, they were beautiful. Yeah. It, it gave the team in marketing a chance to work with the float builders and uh, figuring out things. And uh, the Star Wars Spectacular was uh, was sort of the the rebirth of the 501st because mm-hmm. so many people got to meet. Um, from around the world and develop relationships that they never would have otherwise. And it uh, it did wonders for recruiting when people saw this and uh, saw how many people were in Stormtrooper costumes and saying, I want a piece of
0: that. That's awesome. I remember watching that and just freaking out because, like you said, the Endor... And the Naboo floats are just incredible and beautiful and really took that nature and that artistry that I think George was really pushing for in both of those planets and and pushed them to kind of a real world scenario and and really, really turned out well.
1: I still have two pieces of the uh, Naboo float in my collection, two of the giant Naboo warrior poets that were statues that you saw at the end of episode one as uh, as CG uh, models on... um, uh, tall buildings
0: right, oh, I love it. I
1: love it. We saved those, and yeah. they're still all together.
0: <laughs> That's great. well, speaking of collection we we've kind of danced around it uh, the the rancho obi-wan, what is that like? putting that together, and now it's really just a a destination for fans and a celebration of of Star Wars and of collecting. What has it been like building that over the years and and what are your hopes for it in the future?
1: Well, it started out as being just sort of a giant warehouse for my collection when I moved to Northern California to work for Lucasfilm. Um, I finally moved up here. I started working for Lucasfilm in 1996 and moved up here in 1998 and was looking for a place that had some space. And it uh, turned out uh, that that this place that, that uh, I bought um, had some Former chicken barns. This was a big egg capital of the U.S. <laughs> uh-huh. uh, through uh, World War II, and so these uh, these barns had housed, um, I'm told by neighbors, some um, twenty thousand hens uh, until the early 1970s. Previous owner had turned it into a uh, workshop to make machinery for cabinet makers. Unfortunately for him, this was not zoned for that and uh he got shut down mm-hmm. and had problems and um and the buildings were uh not in in great shape; they were almost open air and i mean not quite open air but uh, they were barns right. and so when we moved here um I decided to turn the first big barn into a warehouse. And that took about nine months, um, and uh, my collection was stored in boxes in the in a back barn, wow. and yeah, through all kinds of weird weather and everything else, I was very lucky that, that nothing got destroyed. Yeah. Um. Uh. But then in um, so sometime in 1999, we were able to start putting the shelving units in and start to put the stuff in. Um. And and I thought I'd have plenty of space. And then the merchandise from episode one started rolling in. (laughs) If you remember, that was a huge amount of stuff. That was a lot. (laughs) So uh, it was uh, was a little tricky. Um, I was having people, friends come over, could see it. But it was basically a warehouse. And um, and some of the uh, fan organizations, like the members of the 501st or the Rebel Legion and people that I had met out in uh, conventions, uh, if they had been in the area, I would give them a walkthrough. But uh, going forward a couple of years, when I realized that I would be retiring from Lucasfilm in 2011, we decided in 2010 to incorporate as a nonprofit and to... uh, to actually turn this into a museum type mm-hmm. setting and uh, redo the back barn to add another 3,000 square feet of space. And, um, and that took about another over another year to do. And in November of 2011, we opened as uh, Rancho Obi-Wan. Um, years later, the Guinness Book of World Records approached us and said, we think you've got the world's largest collection of <laughs> Star Wars stuff, yeah. and can you send us like an inventory and things of that nature, and uh, we did that. They came out here, and they looked around and took photos, and uh, we're in the 2014 book as the world's largest collection of Star Wars memorabilia. At that point with an inventory of less than 100,000 pieces, we think we have about 400,000 pieces in the collection today. But we've been doing tours ever since. People can go online to ranchoobiwan.org. We book tours three to four months in advance. They are uh, done on uh, Saturday mornings and uh, mostly uh, by docents um, who tell my stories and they last two to three hours and uh... everybody has great fun i mean we get uh, amazing feedback on these things and we have people coming from all over the world from russia to vietnam um, who make this uh... And a lot of people who get surprised on their birthdays or their anniversaries yeah. by a spouse so it's been great fun and it's been great to meet uh, all kinds of people from all over the world and continue my relationship with uh, Star Wars fans.
0: I love it. And if people wanted to support Rancho Obi-Wan, there's a membership, and there's also a gala, if you want to talk a little bit about, about those options for people.
1: Right. The annual membership uh, consists of a, a kit, and it's it's a contribution, really, and it helps us uh, pay all the bills, and um, you get a uh, the annual patch and after your first year, you get a pin, um, you know, marking the fact that, uh, that you've been a supporting member for more than a year. Mm-hmm. Uh, you get a little letter and then the ability to take a tour. Uh, everyone who takes a tour, there must be one member, one person in the party who is a member of, uh, of Rancho. And uh, every year, just about, we have a gala. Uh, This year we're having it in the summer on June 12th and 13th. Um, uh, On the 12th is a Skywalker Ranch wine tasting, uh, Skywalker Vineyards. And on the 13th is the gala. Um, It's our first summer gala. We usually have them in the fall. And we get about 150 people here. We have games and auctions. And it's just uh, obviously dinner. huge amount of fun to be with the fellow fans and there's always some special stuff that happens there
0: every year i look at the pictures and i'm like well crap <laughs> next time i'll get up uh, maybe every, next year yeah exactly one year I'll, I'll get out to rancho and i'll get out to the galen uh mr sansweet thank you for your time and your passion and everything you've done for the fan community um it really it really means a lot.
1: my pleasure thank you very much for the opportunity to chat
0: you again to Mr. Sandsweet for the great interview and for all he has done for the Star Wars fan community over the years. For more information on how to become a member of Rancho Obi-Wan head to RanchoObiWan.org or follow them on Facebook. And to hear about Mr. Sandsweet's start of Star Wars Celebration 1 head on over to The Good Guys at Blast Points, episode 164. The link is in the show notes. Until next week, stay tuned, leave a 5 star review,